0: Well, welcome. If you're new to New Hope, glad to have you here. If you're not new to New Hope, we're glad to have you here too, but glad that you're here. And, and there's some welcome cards in the pew racks in front of you, if you don't mind taking a minute to fill those out. This morning, you can. Uh, after you write them out, you can put them in the offering box in the back when you leave this morning. And there's a, there's a place on the back for prayer requests. If you have anything that's on your heart, you want to share with the church that... We have a prayer team here. I'd be happy to pray for you specifically if you just write out some of the details. And if you want to leave it anonymous, a little box on the bottom, you just kind of check anonymous and we'll leave it that way and honor that request. I'm looking forward to uh, this morning's teaching and and I will be honest with you, it's incredibly humbling what we're about to look at. It just uh, takes you to a place, even though you've probably heard about um, Jesus' trial before Pilate, Uh, if you grew up in church many, many times I hope to bring fresh perspective for you this morning to what was going on in that environment. We, we look uh, last week at the ultimate question um, that Caiaphas brought before Jesus in which he said, Who are you? Declare whether or not you are the Son of God. And we saw Jesus' response, Indeed I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in great clouds and power and glory sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and at that point we saw Caiaphas rip his clothing open. Um, He thought that Jesus had blasphemed the name name of God, and that took us to where we're at now with this situation with Jesus before Pilate. If you're new here, um, you wouldn't know that we're 51 weeks into a study in the book of John, and chapter 19 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. We're very near the end in the last few weeks of this study. So I invite you to turn there this morning where we left off at last week. What I find is that this passage this morning is perhaps the most significant brushstroke in the entire study that we've had over the course of our 51 weeks. We've called this study the portrait because each time we see an image of Christ, uh, of God the Father that Jesus has given us, it's, it's like a brush stroke on a blank canvas, and it helps put together an image of what God looks like. Well, you're going to find one of those very significant brush strokes this morning, and that brush stroke is that we discover just how deep the Father's love is for us by what Jesus took on Himself. Now, I want you to understand that what we're about to look at, you might say, has a PG-13 rating. Some of you might say it has an R rating because it's incredibly graphic in nature. And I want you to know that what has been written down by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John regarding the scourging of Jesus is there for a reason, and it's because God wanted us to know. So we don't take it lightly, and we don't look at it just because of the gore. But reflection on, us, on this helps us to understand just what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body broken for you. In the Last Supper, when he held up the piece of bread and he said, this is going to represent my body broken for you, you're about to see what he meant by his body being broken. I don't know what details you have in your mind about a scourging, but I'm going to help you understand when we get to that part of the passage. Isaiah wrote about this. Isaiah 53, if you get a chance later today, 700 years earlier, he had written about this moment in time. So take a look at Isaiah 53 when you get a chance because Isaiah says specifically in the middle of it, by his stripes we are healed. There's healing brought to us, meaning forgiveness of sin. And the stripes that he's talking about are the beatings, the lashes that Jesus took on his body. So step back with me to the first century if you have your Bible open, where we find ourselves in John 18 right at the very end in verse 38 is Pilate is inside his mansion and he's engaging conversation with Jesus in the area known as the Praetorian, the area that good Jews would not go to because it was considered Gentile territory. Therefore, it was off limits to them. It was considered unclean. So inside the Praetorian Pilate engages in this conversation with Jesus. We saw that last week. And he came to the conclusion that because Jesus had claimed kingship, that's why the Jews are so upset with him. He understands that. But he perceives that Jesus is no threat whatsoever to Rome or to him personally in his job position. And so therefore, he's about to render him guiltless. I find no guilt in him. So go with me to John 18.38 and you'll see it on the screen as well. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Meaning he left the praetorian. He went back to where the Jewish leaders were all standing. Now they're waiting outside in the courtyard. Pilate concludes that Jesus doesn't deserve to die, but somewhere between his journey from his quarters out to where the Jews are waiting, he has an inspiration It pops in his mind that he can come to a place where they're going to be comfortable because there's a middle ground. And so he proposes a solution to them, hoping that perhaps they're going to settle for a victory in principle. Look with me at verse 39. But you have a custom that I release for you someone, uh, that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Now stop right there. Is that not an odd question, if he's just pronounced him innocent? He just said, I find no guilt in him. He's the one who has the power over Israel. He's the procurator of Rome. He's announced that he's innocent. So Jesus should be released. Why is he asking them that question? Why is he proposing? Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 40, their response. So they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. See, Pilate's thinking in his mind that he can appease them. So this is what he's proposing. He's a really good politician, so he's saying, I'm going to declare him guilty, but then I can set him free. It's a compromise. Won't we all be happy? That's what politicians work towards, trying to find some margin where people will be happy. So he thinks he's proposed a really good thing. What he misunderstands and underestimates is the ferocious nature of their determination to kill Jesus. So they shout out, Not this man! So the Jews can see that Pilate's about to release Jesus, and they're going to beat him to the punch, and Mark 15 helps us to understand that. You'll see this on the screen, Mark 15, 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. So The chief priests understood. They knew Pilate's political gain. And they looked forward and they thought, we'll get the crowd on our side. Even though Jesus is popular, this mob is being manipulated by leaders. And you see that today around the world. When a a mob is incited to passion, they lose their sense of bearing. And a devious leader can step in and corrupt their thinking and cause them to stop thinking with their head and start thinking with their feelings. Because in this case, who in the world would set Barabbas free? This guy's a gangster. He's a notorious murderer, according to Matthew 27. And he's a a rabble-rouser. And so he incites crowds to angry action. And he's actually murdered people. So what's going on in their head? That they want a murderer walking the streets of Jerusalem free again and to put Jesus to death. That's how much they hate Jesus. Now it's really ironic to me that the same leaders who are demanding that Pilate condemn an insurrectionist, they're calling Jesus, demand that they release an insurrectionist. It makes no sense whatsoever. So in their minds, Jesus is worse than a murderer. Now, by this point in time, the crowds, according to Matthew 27, have made their way to the praetorium, and they're standing in the courtyard as well. All of Jerusalem is awakening to the morning news that Jesus is on trial, and according to Matthew 27, a large crowd gathers outside. Now, Pilate's already declared Jesus innocent, so it's really surprising when we go to chapter 19 and verse 1 that we see this statement. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. What? He just said he's innocent. Now, if you understand the scourging, you know what's taking place here. So in Pilate's mind, he tried negotiation number one. I'll release him. It's your custom at Passover. Well, that didn't work. Let's go to strategy number two. In his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to order a flogging. And that'll meet their demands. And we understand that from Luke. It parallels Luke's version in Luke 23. Look with me on the screen at that. He said, Pilate, Jesus has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. That's what Pilate is thinking. Scourging takes form in three different ways in the first century. And you have it in your notes this morning. If you picked up one of the bulletins, you'll see it on the screen as well. And the first form, this is where it begins to edge on PG-13, is the fustiagatio. And and in this form, it's a much less severe beating. It's one that's used for Hooligans, I don't know if you're familiar with that word. I don't think we use it too much in modern America today. But a hooligan is someone who's just causing trouble all the time. Maybe they're stealing fruit from the fruit market. Whatever they're doing, they get a beating, but it's a much less severe form, and usually it's accompanied by a pretty severe warning. Number two is the and and that is a pretty severe, harsh whipping. It's not with a cat of nine tails, though. The cat of nine tails is reserved for the third one. And the third one is the the verberatio. And it's always associated with crucifixion every single time. The Romans didn't hesitate to use it. It would hasten death when someone was crucified because of how brutal it was in nature. Now, if you and I could step back to the first century and put on spiritual lenses and stand back and just watch this unfold, we would begin to see a dark cloud forming over the top of the praetorium as the demons of hell are unleashed to carry forth some of the most horrendous acts that have ever been brought about on planet Earth because they have at this moment the opportunity to attack the Son of God and they hold absolutely nothing back because the Lamb of God is about to be stripped and tied to a post. This is what happens in the Verbaratio. A three to four foot post is in the ground and the criminal is taken to the post and chained to a hook at the very top. His arms are wrapped around it so that he cannot pull away. And if he tries to swing to the left or the right, they kick his feet up from underneath him. He's been stripped of his clothing. At that point, the torturer begins to walk up to him, smacking the whip just to intimidate him in a mocking tone. When the first blow lands, it hooks into the flesh because the cat of nine tails is made up of metal and bone, and metal and bone is shaped in such a way that it's got the barbs of a hook. I'm sorry if this is graphic for you, but it's important that we understand this. This is why John wrote this down, and he used the words scourged, a very specific form of beating. According to eyewitness reports, the scourgings were so brutal, the body was so torn as a result of this and lacerated that muscle and bone was completely exposed. In some cases, the entrails of the intestines were visible to the people watching. The only thing that stopped a torturer was when they grew tired. And I don't mean the victim, I mean the arm of the torturer. So at that point, the commanding officer would say, next, and a new torturer would step up. See, the Jews had a limitation. The Jews had a limitation that you could only receive 39 lashes because it was believed if you received more than that, you would die. And indeed, many victims died on the scourging post because to the Romans, they had no such limitations. They didn't care about the number 39. They kept going until the crowd was bored or the commanding officer called them off. And that explains why Jesus was so weak he could not even carry his own cross. And they had to find another man to come alongside him to carry his cross for him. This is what we understand that Jesus carried for us. And you have to stop at this point, church, and say, How is it possible that the God of this universe would allow himself to be so surrendered to his will and his predetermined plan? That he would allow himself to endure this for us. You can imagine the pain is horrific. Now, at this moment in time, almost to break the agony for the reader, we're told of a little detail by Matthew. At this moment, Pilate is sitting on the bema seat, watching this unfold, and his wife sends a note to him. Look with me on the screen. It comes from Matthew twenty-seven nineteen. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. You get the setting of what's going on in that moment. Come forward with me now to verse 2, because now we begin to see how the soldiers are treating Jesus. Jesus. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. I suspect as John looked back on this as an aged man in his 90s writing the book of John, he's filled with grief and with pain and with what you are feeling right now and what I'm feeling, humility, humility that our God would do this at at one level we understand the cruelty is nothing more than barracks vulgarity something happens to soldiers when they get together in some settings where they lose control of their behavior we've seen that in the news in in recent years it happens occasionally But here, we see John writing it down for us and Matthew giving us more detail because what we discover next is they're not content with the beating of Jesus. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Now, if you've been here in the last couple weeks, you remember us talking about a cohort. Anybody remember how many soldiers are in a cohort? He had 600 to 1,000 soldiers in a cohort. And John and Matthew go out of their way to tell us they gathered the entire Roman cohort, verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. This is after the beating. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they nailed down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And they've twisted together these long spikes. Now, what we understand from archaeologists who have studied this territory is that this area was surrounded and still is today, by what's known as the date palm tree... And the date palm tree has long little twisty vines shooting out from it which have between 3 and 12 inch thorns on it. And that's most likely what they took. Now the 12 inch thorns are fairly brittle but the 3 inch thorns have a very, very sharp point to them and they actually have a poisonous tip so that when it penetrates the skin, the skin begins to boil around it. If that's what they formed this out of, which is most likely what they did, you're looking at really rough mockery and treatment of this prisoner. And the intensity and the rage along with it is only accompanied by the fact that they begin beating him over the head with this scepter. And they mock him by putting this robe. And then seemingly worst of all, they begin doing what they would do to Caesar because Caesar would wear a crown, a wreath, and they would say, Hail Caesar! But would they dare slap Caesar in the face? No, they would kneel before him as they knelt before Jesus and on their way up, they give him a rapizo, meaning the backside of the palm or the knuckle side right across the face. And we're told that they beat him that way. How many of the soldiers? I have no way of knowing. Next, we're told in verse 4 that Pilate came out again. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you So Jesus is not on stage yet. Pilate is. So that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Second time he's declared it. Verse 5, Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So I'm seeing this mental image of Pilate stepping out of the shadows behind the stage before the crowd And this dramatic presentation takes place of this pathetic figure of humanity who's just had his flesh stripped from his body. And with the the metal rivets that are in the leather strips, in most cases, it broke the bones of the body. But in Jesus' case, we're told that there were no broken bones on his body. But many times it caused the lungs to collapse and in his brokenness, coming out with this robe over him and this crown of thorns, Pilate says, behold the man. Why present him that way? Because in his mind, if he presents him as being punished already and the scourging has taken place, behold the man. This is what you consider a threat to your nation? This is what you consider to be the king, the one whom you are at risk of? Behold the man. He's no threat to you. Uh, This image under normal circumstances would make all of us recoil to be able to see this. But in their case, what's unknown here, especially by Pilate, there's a spiritual battle taking place. The demons of hell have been unleashed on Jesus. And he can't see the spiritual battle underway. Pilate, I mean. And so that's why he says, Behold the man. And in this moment, church, I was really set back this last week and in, in, in the week before when I'm looking at this passage and thinking, this moment right here is dripping with impossible paradoxes that none of us could have seen before. Anyone who lived before this time could have never seen it. And we looking back on it saying, how could this be? Because my mind immediately goes to the time when man fell in the garden And God comes to the Garden of Eden and begins engaging in a conversation with Adam and Eve about what they've done and how grievous their action was. And God actually has this conversation with Adam in which he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Genesis 3.17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow. We understand prior to that moment, because everything was perfect in creation, thorns and thistles had not grown. And because of man's sin, God called thorns to exist upon planet earth, and those same thorns are now worn by the Creator who spoke them into existence as He carries the sins of the world. And the bones that He spoke into existence had been broken into little pieces and embedded in leather so that they could rip at his flesh. What a paradox, who could have imagined this? And all the witnesses standing there are too blind to see the one who is full of grace and truth and mercy. All they see is someone who we want to go after instead of a brutalized, painful, weakness image it just infests them with anger. Look with me at verse 6. So when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to him, to them take, them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. At this moment... Pilate has lost control of the crowd. He's lost the room. The sight of Jesus bruised and bleeding is like sharks detecting blood in the water and they can't stand it any longer. And note with me, as a part of that last statement in verse 7, there is no confusion whatsoever in anyone's mind about what they understand. Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. They chose to reject it. They brought Pilate Jesus so that he would condemn him and put him to death and they will settle for nothing less. So that's why you see Pilate's exasperated reaction. Fine, you take him and crucify him. The pronouns in the Greek language have a very emphatic meaning. You take him. I believe him to be innocent. I want no part of this. And this is the moment, we understand according to Scripture, in which Pilate washes his hands and says, I will have no part in what you are about to do here. So they trump him by saying, we have a law. They understand how Rome acts. Pilate understands how Rome acts, so they're gonna play the trump card. And here's the trump card. We have a law. This statement is always associated by someone who's trying to enforce civil law. Because when Rome came in the first century and prior to that and after that, and conquered a territory, The job that they had given to a governor, Pilate in this case, was to be make sure that peace reigned over the region. They didn't want to come back in with their armies and waste all the money trying to reinforce peace again. So the governor had a job. Allow the people of the conquered community to carry about their civil affairs without intervening as long as it does not interfere with the purposes of Rome." However, when you see them saying, we have a law, they're reminding Pilate that they're a conquered people, but that they have a civil right. They want their legal rights honored. We have a law, and that law says he's supposed to be put to death. And that's why Pilate at that moment has to back off because they've said two things. We have a law, and he has claimed to be the son of God. And that puts fear in Pilate. Go with me to verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So they obviously move off stage back into the area where Pilate's residence is at because Pilate has heard a new revelation here. This statement takes him back to what you learned last week. Pilate had been in a conversation with Jesus. Do you remember the statement? So, you are a king. Jesus' response, it is as you say. But my kingdom is not of this realm. I am from another place, a place you've never been, Pilate. In a moment, Pilate is taken back to that conversation because he's received the note from his wife saying, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. In a dream, I've been tormented. So Pilate's really afraid at this moment. Immediately, he takes Jesus back. Why? Because in the Greco-Roman mind at this period of time, it wasn't a matter of blasphemy for him. This is a time when the Greeks and the Romans worshipped Zeus, and they believed in gods with small g, and Son of God was something that was attached to the gods And this has really scared Pilate because he's just had potentially a son of God flogged. And it scares him. Is he indeed a God who's come to earth and I've had him flogged? Where are you from? That's to alleviate his fears because he's scared. What's your origin? What's Jesus going to say in that moment to help him understand where he's from? How is it possible to take one who's more interested in political maneuvering than truth to understand what we have in the book of Revelation today, what heaven is? Pilate is a man who stretched on the stage of human power, but he's enslaved to job security. And he's so afraid, he doesn't want to offend anyone. So we're told, but Jesus gave him no answer. And so you have to ask yourself the question at this point, how? But Jesus gave him no answer. And not only how, why? Uh, Peter writes down for us very specifically that what's going on here at this moment is Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by not speaking. Written 700 years earlier, Isaiah said this, Isaiah 53.7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Yes, he's fulfilling prophecy, but there's a much larger principle going on here, church. And here's the much larger principle. It's a basic spiritual truth. God does not reveal new truth to us if we fail to act on the truth we already have. Pilate's had the conversation. You saw that last week. They engaged in the truth conversation. They engaged in the fact that he's a king. But Pilate has failed to act on that. He's got the truth. Why should God reveal new truth to him? Now all that does is tick off Pilate because he goes to this place of fear very quickly. And what does fear produce in human emotion? Fear always produces anger. Because we don't want anybody to know that we're afraid. And so he goes to the opposite extreme and he allows his fear to turn into rage. And that's why you see the response that you do in verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Verse 11, the lamb does speak. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Do you not know that I have authority? What's he doing here? He's trying to demonstrate power, but he's demonstrating weakness. Pilate's issuing an empty threat. Here's why. He's the procurator of all of Israel. Rome has put him in power. He's the final voice. He's already declared Jesus innocent twice. If he really had authority... He would have freedom. What's to stop him from doing it? He doesn't really have ultimate authority. And that's what Jesus is speaking to. He's telling him, you don't have the authority. It's part of God's predetermined plan, the foreknowledge of God. There's a truth throughout the New Testament. The writers see constantly that the things that are orchestrated on our world stage, what's going on in Iran, in Syria, in the United States, all over planet Earth right now, is not outside of God's control. God certainly knows what's going on because no matter how good a national leader is or no matter how vile a national leader is, ultimately, all authority originates from God. Look with me on the screen, Romans 13. This was very clearly spoken to by Paul. Paul said this, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except by God's appointment, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is something for us to remember as we step into this political season. We're well into it, actually, but as we think of what God's doing among us, we have to be aware that everything originates from God. But that's not what strikes me most. This is what set me back on my heels this week. That the thought that brings most comfort to Jesus in the midst of his most difficult circumstances is that he knows, that he knows, that he knows. This is part of God's plan. And everything is in God's control. So when faced with pure evil, Jesus speaks boldly and without any reservation whatsoever Pilate, this is not your doing. You have no authority over me if it had not been given to you by the one who has ultimate authority. But he goes on to make an unusual statement in verse 11. The one who handed me over to you, he's guilty of even a greater sin. Who's he talking about there? Well, my mind immediately goes to Judas Iscariot like yours would because we know that Judas handed him over, but that wouldn't be true. Because Judas handed Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. And Jesus said, the one who handed me over to you. Well, who did that? The religious leaders. The Sanhedrin. Caiaphas. What's so significant about that? Caiaphas is the one that knew that Jesus had resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He knew all the prophecies. He's an authority on the word of God. He had everything painted before him. And he's also the same one who said, better that one man die than an entire nation be taken away and Rome remove my power. Caiaphas is the one who's guilty of a much greater sin. So Pilate hears all these things, and now he really doesn't know what to do, so he's strategizing in his mind, how do I free this guy? Go with me to verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabatha. See, they have him by the short hairs at this moment. Do you know what the short hairs are? My mom knew because they're on the back of the neck. And my mom knew that if you pull down on the short hairs on the back of the neck, you probably don't get much of a response out of the person. But if you pull up on the short hairs, it really hurts. And my mom used that technique a few times on me when I was a child to get me to do what she wanted to. If she could get me by the short hairs, I yielded really quickly. And they've got Pilate by the short hairs. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. See, this is a title, In the first century, friend of Caesar was something that every man in the Roman Empire strove to be part of. It meant that you're part of the inner circle. Pilate was trusted by Tiberius Caesar to be part of the inner circle. And they're saying, you're not part of the inner circle if you're going to do this. Why is that on Pilate's mind? Because Sejanus was also a friend of Caesar who lived in Rome and just a few years earlier had been executed by Tiberius Caesar. Because Tiberius Caesar was very swift to action when people brought accusations against some of his subordinates. And someone brought an accusation against Sejanus. And so Tiberius Caesar had him drawn and quartered and then murdered 80 of his closest friends and their wives, and their children, and their servants. So when they say to him, you are no friend of Caesar, that's the same accusation that was brought against Seginus." And Pilate clicks at that moment, and he yields. Because what we see next is they bring Jesus out, and Pilate sits down on the bema seat, the judgment seat, Archaeologists helped us to understand this moment because they just uncovered the stone pavement area called Gabatha in Jerusalem. And the area where the fortress of Antonio is at is a 3,000 square foot area of brick pavers that are put together, and that's where the bema seat was placed. Pilate sat down on that and rendered his verdict, and it has to go back to the original decision that he was charged with, sedition. So at this moment... Rome brings a judicial decision against the judge of the universe and it's incredibly humbling look with me at verse 14 now it was the day of preparation for the passover it was about the 6th hour and he said and he said to the jews behold your king so they cried out away with him away with him crucify him pilate said to them Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now John wanted us to know this detail, that it's about the sixth hour for a very specific reason. Because Mark records for us, it was about the third hour. And how do you rectify the two? Now, they didn't wear watches at that time, and they didn't carry sundials around with them wherever they went. So when one says it's about the ninth hour, and one says it's about the sixth hour, what do you do with that? How do you have that discrepancy? Well, they were both there. The book of Mark was transcribed by Peter. Peter's the one that dictated to Mark what to write down. So Peter was there, and, and John was obviously there. What do you do with that? Well, it was very common during this period of time because they looked at the sun to try and determine the time of day. When John says it was approaching noon, it was very common for people in the first century to approximate within three-hour time blocks. So they're both right. It's in that period of time between the third and the sixth hour. But John is even more specific. It was about the sixth hour, meaning in the Greek language, it was almost there. Here's why he wanted you to know that. This is the same moment in time on the day of preparation before the Passover when all of the little lambs that were to be used as sacrifices in the temple for the sins of the people were led through the courtyard. And they were brought to the place of slaughter. It began at noon because there were thousands of lambs to be slaughtered. And so Jesus has had judgment pronounced on him to be the Passover lamb, the lamb of God for the sins of the world at the same time that the Passover lambs are being brought in. And that's the moment he hears this chilling hypocrisy being screamed out by his own countrymen. We have no king but Caesar. <laughs> they've traded the King of Kings for Caesar. Horrendous hypocrisy. And true, in truth, they've just given Jesus out, so that's all they've got left is Caesar. Matter of fact, they screamed out, Luke 19:14, we will not have this man reign over us. And that's when they made the statement. Let this man's blood be on us and our children. Would you want the blood of Christ on your head? Pronouncement was made against them at that moment. This is where it ends, verse 16. So he handed, he then handed him over to be crucified. What a horrible bargain. I have to ask you this question that I asked each of the services this weekend. I asked myself this week, what kept Pilate from standing up for Jesus see he's got the note from his wife guys you know what that's like to get a message from your wife I mean you want to respond to that right you pay attention to those things what kept him from standing up for Jesus in that moment he's got the warning he's got all the evidence but that didn't motivate him he's even had God in the room with him and as you saw last week, they talked about the most intimate issues on his heart, what was troubling him. God saw right into his heart and talked to him about those issues. Even with that, he still kept moving forward. What kept him from standing up for Jesus? Now, I've landed on three things fear of Caesar, fear of man, and fear of job loss. If I translated that into 2012 right here in this day on September 9th, I'd say his boss, his social circle, and his financial world. Those are the things that scared him. All of these issues weigh on the mind of every person, whether Christian or non-Christian. And in this moment, at this juncture, Pilate decides to give in to the pressures of the world. He doesn't stand up for Jesus So we've come to this moment where we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean for me to be fully surrendered to the will of God like we saw Jesus fully surrendered? Because Pilate would be the antithesis. He's 180 degrees the other way. He's fully not surrendered. But we claim to be believers in Jesus if that's where you're at this morning. So we have to ask ourselves, am I that surrendered to the will of God that I would go to the length that Jesus did. So I'm going to ask you this morning, we're going to sing in just a moment this old church hymn called, I Surrender All. And if you're at that point where you haven't surrendered all, I'm going to ask you to really count the cost of what that means. It's a a song of surrender, but it's a song of calculation for you to enter into it. So maybe it's a financial issue in your world that you haven't surrendered. Maybe it's an occupational issue. Maybe it's a relational issue. And you haven't fully surrendered it to God the Father. And this is a moment for you to do that. You don't have to come forward to do that and stand here. God notices when you do things like that, but he notices when you stand right where you're at. And you just pray and express to him what you're surrendering. So I'm going to pray for us right now. and I'm going to ask you to count the cost of this song that you're about to participate in. Are you really at the point where you can say, I surrender all? So would you bow with me and let's just go before the Father and ask Him to seal these things for us. God, we come before you as a a group of people who willingly would admit we're humbled by what we read. God, the depth of how much you love us is beyond calculation. I look at this, Father, and I'm so quickly reminded of verses throughout Scripture. He who knew no sin became sin for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God, that's how much you love us. And yet, we have to ask ourselves, are we that surrendered back to you? Father, we come before you right now with a song that we want To sing boldly and loudly. But we can only do that through the power of your Holy Spirit working in us as we yield things that might be weighing us down. I don't know if it's a spouse, I don't know if it's a job, I don't know if it's money, I don't know what it is, Father. You do though. So for each individual in this room, God, work through this music and work through the words that we've just read and help us to understand what it means to be surrendered to you and to sing loudly that we willingly surrender all to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before Pilate pronounced judgment on Jesus, he asked this particular question that comes from the book of Matthew. What shall I do with Jesus? What do I do with this one who's called to Christ. For 2,000 years that question has been asked and the only thing that's changed are the people who have to make that decision. That includes you this morning. Perhaps you've never made that decision before and you don't know what to do with this. Peter was asked this exact same question only a few weeks later by somebody who said, I don't know what to do with this. What do I do with Jesus? And his response was this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the truth, uh, church. That's the truth of Scripture. All you have to do is believe and put your trust in Jesus that God raised him from the dead. If you've never gone to that place and you've never put your faith in Christ, maybe you don't know what it means to be surrendered to him. I'm going to encourage you to just come up and talk to me after the service this morning. And, And perhaps you can't do that. Grab one of the note cards and just write on one of the note cards, I need to talk to you. I need to talk about this issue. Slide it in the offering box and they'll pass that note on to me. I'd be happy to engage with you in that conversation so you can learn what it means to be surrendered to this one who went to the cross for you. He wants to free you from all that guilt that you carry. Let me pray with you and send you out. Father, we go out now to take on this day in full knowledge of the greatness of your love for us. How great is the love of our God that he went to the cross? and he endured the scourging of the Roman guard. Father, we can't even begin to measure that, but we get boldness from the knowledge of it. At the same time, we gain humility, knowing that you would go to this length for us. Father, remind us of this as we take on this week, that we would speak boldly on your behalf. It's in Jesus' name we ask this, the name that is above every name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.